Welcome to the Inspiring Leadership podcast series. This is aimed for you aspiring leaders, whatever level you're at, whether you're beginning out in your careers as managers and leaders, whether you're in middle ranking roles, or whether you're CEOs and chairman of boards, there's always something we can all learn. And it's particularly the skills, stories, tips and techniques that you can pass on to those you lead and your teams. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to this week's Inspiring Leadership Podcast. I am delighted to have an old friend and colleague of mine from my staff college days. And uh, he had a very successful career in the Royal Marine, doing some gritty, tough stuff and learning lots about life and leadership. And then uh, he went on to Australia, where he became a captain in the uh, Royal Australian Navy. Uh, and now, all that time he's been learning about being a, a coach, he's an exceptionally good coach. Now he's turned himself into a coach who brings that wisdom and experience to people in Australia. We're lucky to have him here in this country for a short stay. Without further ado, I'll let him introduce himself. Thanks, Jonathan. Um, hello, everyone. My name's Jim Hutton. Uh, Scott by birth, uh, now, um, uh, now an Australian citizen. Uh, I'm a carver of wooden spoons, uh, and I'm a life and leadership coach. Um, uh, as Jonathan said, I'm former Colonel of Royal Marines uh, and latterly a captain of uh, Royal Australian Navy. Uh, and I've spent the last uh, 10, 11 years in Australia uh, helping to develop uh, their emerging amphibious capability, uh, which is a movement of troops uh, from ships to sea via landing craft and helicopters in a tactical environment. Over to Fantastic. You, Fantastic. And while we're just talking about that, before we talk about inspiring leadership, I imagine it must be such an interesting time and also a challenging time as you see the, the rise and rise of China with, you know, building aircraft carrier, you know, concreting over the uh, Paracel and the, um, the other islands around there, sticking, you know, missile batteries on there. It must make the Australians and the finally the New Zealanders are waking up as well. Go, we need to do something about this, and we need to collaborate with others. What's what's your just your your thumbnail of what's going on with that? Yeah, I think uh, um, I think what we've seen across the world is the removal of warning time. Uh, I think most Western countries, including Australia, for many years believed that if a war was ever to come, it was ten years away, um, and we had plenty of time to think about it. Uh, and you could mobilize your system. Um, but, uh, you know, you'll read the commentaries in the press and the academic literature. The warning time has has shrunk. Um, so uh, if things get nasty, you're going with what you've got. So you better have some decent stuff. Um, and I think what we're seeing uh, across uh, the Western world now is an investment in defense, um, in the quality of the, the soldiers, sailors and airmen that you have in their training um, and the kit and equipment that they operate, carry and use in defence of their countries. Yeah, well, um, it is a, a really challenging time and this is when more than ever we need good military people. So the wisdom experience you're sharing, we also want to combine it with uh, stories of people that you've known. We were talking, you and I, Jim, about inspiring leaders and, you know, uh, I think you mentioned three. You mentioned uh, General Gordon Messenger. Uh, you mentioned Rob Metcalf and J.J. Thompson. Just tell the, those listening, because they they may not uh, know um, these individuals, what they did and, and why you found them inspiring leaders that you wanted to call out. Yes, absolutely. Um, Rob, uh, we were subalterns, you know, lieutenants, young lieutenants together uh, back in the early 80s. Um, he was uh, just ahead of me in training, um, and we ended up serving in 4-5 Commando up in Scotland um, together. Uh, Rob's a deep thinker, uh, someone who's constantly educating himself. He did uh, really a short career in the, the, the Corps and then took advantage of an opportunity to go to Australia uh, and start a, a leadership and coaching business in Sydney, uh, which he did really successfully. Um, and he's had three or four businesses um, in in the Australian um, area uh, over those years. Uh, and now he's working, um, supporting the United Nations, uh, supporting their deployed teams in some of the um, 
the most arduous environments, um, helping their leaders uh, be as effective as they can be in those um, in those environments. He's been a best friend. He's you know been wise counsel. Um, and as a fellow coach, every time we get together and work together, uh, which we have now and again, um, we just bounce and learn off each other. Um, tremendous, tremendous character and great family man. Yeah, it is interesting. Um, one of the joys of this uh, Inspiring Leadership podcast, I met some fascinating people around the world. Jeff Nishwitz, who's a friend of mine in um, America, we sort of co-coach each other. Uh, he's now a sort of COO of a, a legal business, but but a really good coach. Uh, and, and he runs programs for, for it's called Mankind for men getting yeah. together and sort of working through their kind of issues. Really interesting guy. And then Will Hogg, who's in Switzerland. Uh, Will was, I think, a light infantry officer, but now a uh, coaching business. And then a, a podcast friend of mine, Graham Brown, who's over in Singapore. And the, these kind of friendships. Uh, the interesting thing is we haven't met each other physically because of COVID, but we've become really great friends and we share ideas and things. And, and it's nice that you've got that Royal Marine background with Rob Metcalf and now him so successful in business as a, a leadership coach. I think there's a lot of the best officers who can make that transition into becoming great leadership coaches with that humility, humanity and humor you and I talked about. What about uh, if you called out Gordon? Tell people about uh, General Gordon Messenger. So Gordon, again, we were subalterns together in 4-5 Commando. I think when I was OC Zulu Company, um, commanding one of the rifle companies, he was the adjutant um, working for the, the, the commanding officer. And then he relieved me uh, as OC Zulu when we were halfway through the tour in Belize in mid-80s. can't remember exactly when now. Um, but, but Gordon Gordon was a huge character, Um um, uh, a sort of hail fellow, well met, you know, um, nice as pie guy, um, hugely professional, uh, but quietly humble, um, uh, but uh, with a with a razor like sense of humour, um, um, very very able in bringing you down to <laughs> that size uh, with the, with the the level of sarcastic application of his wit and repartee. Um, and uh, one of those guys that you just you just enjoy being in his company. Um, so many years, well, it'd be about 2000 and blah, um, 2002. Um, I, I was sitting somewhere and saw a signal saying that there was no second in command for uh, 40 commando, he was the commanding officer. And so I, I I wrote a rapid message to the disappointer, as we call the, the chap that organizes your career, and said, I want to be I want to be Gordon's 2IC. And he said, Oh, you can't, you're already a lieutenant colonel. I said, bust me to major. I want to be Gordon's 2IC. I want to get back to a unit. Um, and so quick chat, you know, Gordon said, Yeah, I'll take Jim. Um, and uh, so I went um as his 2IC in 2002. And the first thing I had to do was go out to America and plan exercise black horse. Uh, which was a combined arms exercise with the 7th Marines, um, part of the 1st Marine Division at 29 Palms in California. So I went out there, but I just kept my Lieutenant Colonel rank on because I knew I'd get more done. Um, so I got access to the Divisional Commander and the, 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 the Regimental Commander and jacked up this absolutely hoofing exercise for the unit. And uh, we took 40 Commando out there and, and did some great stuff. Um, uh, and then, of course... We came back from that, and in early January, uh, we got warned off for Optelic, the invasion of Iraq, and we were on. We were the lead commando group. We were on point, um, and so we started planning um, to seize the oil infrastructure in the Al Four. Um, and myself and five others were locked in a the joint planning space in HMS Ocean. For three months, as we toiled around the Mediterranean, then into the Red Sea, and finally up into the Gulf, and we planned our part of the invasion, and we were the first groups in uh, under Gordon's leadership. And Gordon, Gordon empowered me to plan the assault. Um, he took care of his company commanders and and all the leaders, uh, from corporal, sergeant, lieutenant, you know, companies. He worked with the leaders and I made the plans, um, you know, to his intent. And um, 
we pulled off what was Mission Impossible, uh, conduct a night aviation assault against a heavily defended position um, against our doctrine, as our doctrine is not to land where the enemy is, it's to you know use some guile. Uh, we we had no choice, um, and uh, we were catastrophically su successful, and took no casualties. Wow! Um, wow. Uh, just putting six hundred and fifty marines um, onto the onto three targets um, wow. simultaneously. So, wow. that, yeah, <laughs> we we just did our twentieth anniversary last weekend, and. Um, I think a mark of the unit is over 200 of the lads turned up. 200 of the 650 appeared at Norton Manor Camp in Taunton um, to just remember um, and uh, share their experiences, drink a few beers, and uh, it was absolutely lovely. Well, congratulations on that. I mean, that kind of experience uh planning and war fighting few have and um in the leaders that i meet today you know that the issues that they get caught up with a small beer compared to what you had to do and gordon went on to become vice chief of the defense staff uh what is he doing now well he's a constable of the tower of london <laughs> he is isn't he that's right yeah constable yeah. of the tower of london <laughs> And uh, I actually met him for a cup of tea yesterday and had a great catch-up. And he, he's got a portfolio of interests. Um, he's on a number of boards um, uh, and a number of sort of think tanks. And uh, he's, um, you know, people people like to be in his company because he, 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 he's, he thinks and he's got things to say. Yeah. Well, he, he's, a, he's a lovely man, and uh, you might remind him, he probably won't remember me, but I remember meeting him at Windsor Castle. We have a Windsor leadership get-together, various CEOs and generals and admirals, and he was great there. Uh, and and um, we had his predecessor, um, Richard Dannett, who was also the council. Yep. Uh, obviously, Inge was also a predecessor. I worked for him as his ADC and, and survived, uh, but sort of almost psychologically damaged for the rest of my life, I think, as a result of that. And also Nick Horton, I went to the tower for a Goldsmiths Company event and we had Nick as our guest and he was a previous constable. So um, do say we'd love to have Gordon on if, you, if you'd chat with him. And JJ Thompson, you mentioned JJ Thompson. Yes. Tell people listening what JJ did and, and why he's an inspiring leader. So JJ, um, he was a, 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 a Royal Marine, um, served his time as a, a subaltern in Borneo. So he had very in, early operational experience as a as a lieutenant in the Corps, uh, fighting in, in um, the confrontation. And um, when I I came across him, you know, twice when he was COSBS. Uh, special boat service, and he was CO45 commando, and I joined his OC Zulu company. He was he was a commanding officer, uh, and there was a couple of couple of great things um, about John. One, he was very quiet. Um, he was more comfortable talking one to one to people than in large groups. Um, he was very quietly spoken. He was a hugely competent um, orienteer. Uh, he loved he loved running um, and and orienteering. Um, and and would would far rather talk about that than anything else that anyone else that anyone else would would be interested in talking about. Um, but there was a couple of occasions up in four or five when um, he uh, he came. He uh, we were doing mountain training, which we always did in the November uh, October November time before we'd go to Norway for our winter deployments. And um, uh, we were up and we were doing the Anarchy Gak Ridge in Glencoe, which is quite a quite a interesting and demanding uh, yomp across the spiny ridge uh, at, at the uh, the side of Glencoe and we're taking the whole company along it 150 marines in full gear weapons everything you know doing this as part it was a sort of culmination and JJ said he would come and join us um and so he picked us up at the devil staircase which is at the the, the south east end uh we're yomping up we get on the top it's 80 degrees um, Fahrenheit. It was one of those, you know, the, the day in Scotland when the sun comes out. It was boiling hot. And um, we had a bit of a water stop, maybe, you know, a third of the way into it. 
And I said to JJ, I said, um, is it okay if, uh, if we let the lads relax jackets, take their jackets off and, and just yomp in T-shirts? And he went, yeah, provided that they're all uh, black or green T-shirts. And um, I said, yeah, absolutely, sir, they are. Um, <laughs> so give the order to strip off jackets. And I had briefed the lads ahead of time that no, <laughs> there's only one colour for your T-shirt, you know, or colours, black or green. And of course, they took their they took the jackets off, and right there, you can see this ridge is going ding, 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 and right at the front, maybe a hundred men forward. This guy peels his jacket off, and he's wearing a green t-shirt, but it's luminous green. <laughs> it's luminous green, and you can see it. It was like a beacon. <laughs> it was maybe three quarters of a mile ahead. I was on the ridge line. And, and JJ just turned around to me and, and looked at me and he said, um, are you going to tell him or am I? <laughs> <laughs> Everyone put their jackets back on and we'll, and we'll sweat it out because of one Marine who couldn't, you know, listen to the detail. Uh, he great. was Mr. Unpopular. But, you know, JJ's view on the world was war is black and white. Combat mm. is black and white. Um, you live or you die. Uh, and and the the mistakes that get you killed are the basics, and he was just always on at people for the basics. You know the simple little things like jumping up and down to see if you're rattling um, before you go out and patrol. The things you're taught, you know, checking your marines' feet to make sure they're not you know getting trench foot if they're in, operating in wet conditions. Um, where you put your machine gun um, when you stop so that. If you get ambushed or you have a meeting engagement, your gun's in the right place to do something to help you. So he he was all over those basics, and that rubbed off on me um, uh, in a very big way. Um, great guy. Yeah, well, look, thank you. Three very special people. And, of course, you've had the gift of meeting a whole variety of special people. You and I were reminiscing about our staff college intake uh, who accumulated 64 stars. Now, for those who don't, know that the armed forces a star is like a brigadier or a major general brigadier is one star major general two lieutenant general three and a full star general four and there used to be field marshals like the field marshal i worked for peter inge who was the last field marshal uh got appointed as field marshal and then closed the rank off which i thought was very clever you know <laughs> pull, pull the pull the bridge up so no one else can the, the rope ladder up so no one else can climb in um and of course they get a pension for life at full salary, which was no small thing. But yeah, we we did have uh, exceptional talent, also very intense. Um, and that's the, the balance, isn't it? Being competitive and comparative without letting it ruin you. And I think at times when I look back, I probably got too competitive and too comparative. And I, I think the mask I was wearing, I now have ripped off and I'm just happier being me. Um, Jim, let's have a look at your life journey. Uh, what shaped you? Uh, how you grew up? You know, I mean, you've done some amazing things. What were your, you know, your carers, your primary carers like? Was it your parents? Was it teachers? Who, who shaped you as a, a leader? And tell us a bit about your life journey. Maybe take about 10 minutes on this, Jim. Yeah, sure. Um, so brought up in the town of Ayr in Ayrshire, uh, home of honest men and bonny lasses, as we see. Um, and, uh, you know, mum and dad uh, and a younger sister and brother um, were three, about three years separating the three of us. Um, you know, I went to a nice little primary school um, where you you learn pretty quickly in that environment how to look after yourself. Um, you know, I, 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 I'm not religious, um, but I was of a Protestant family. Um, but in those days, the, the town was um, a bit segregated. Um, so I could walk the long way to school, which was safe, or I could take the shortcut through the Catholic estate and get <laughs> and risk getting a bashing if I got caught. Um, <laughs> but it was that it was that sort of um, that that sort of environment. And I can I remember, you know, in my little Protestant primary school, um, we we'd run over to the Catholic school and stone them at. Play playtime, and then they'd come and stone us at lunchtime. That was that was the kind of way things happened, um, and we didn't think too much about it. But it made when I then became a Royal Marine officer later, um, and and was serving in Belfast. I kind of understand. Uh, I understood why people behaved the way they did, 
And I realized really quickly that you were a product of your background. It mm. wasn't, you didn't necessarily have a choice in these things. You know, if you were brought up a particular way, then you held a set of views. It was up to you to decide whether they were right or wrong. Um, and, you know, we, but, but you, you didn't get a vote in it early on. Uh, you were there. Um, and, you know, if you're born one side of the tracks, you were this. If you're born the other, you were that. So I, it, it kind of helped shape my views. And, and it meant I was, I think I was better culturally as a result of experiencing that and in, in, in seeing it. Uh, but, you know, early days I did the Cubs and the Scouts and then joined the Boys Brigade because um, my mum went to a church and dragged us along uh, there. And actually the church was good fun if you were a kid because the um, Sunday school and then the Youth Fellowship and the Boys Brigade were uh, were a great, great, you know, um, gr great means of learning uh, and, and, and defining what the difference between right and wrong uh, against a, a you know a set of Christian values, um, which of course, as you grow older, you realise that Christian values and Buddhist values and and, and Muslim values are they're all basically the same. Mm. You know, they define what's right and what's wrong. And if you live, doesn't matter which set you live by. If you live by them, you re be a reasonably good person. So um, that that set me up. Um, I, I left home at seventeen because I wanted to travel, and I joined the, the Royal Navy. Um, uh, and I was sort of three months into Royal Navy on the Dartmouth training ship as a midshipman, which was HMS Hermes, which is a commando carrier. Um, and we were on four P2, four Papa two mess deck, 150 midshipmen and one mess deck on the ship. And across the across the gangway was uh, the Royal Marine Barracks. And there were 30 Royal Marines as part of the ship's company. And those Royal Marines were the only people that treated us civilly in that three-month deployment. <laughs> <laughs> because the Matlows were awful. They treated us terribly. Um, but I took a real shine to the Royal Marines. And as soon as we got back, I, I said to the Royal Marine captain who was on the staff, I'd like to transfer. And he said, join the queue, be at the gym six o'clock Monday morning. <laughs> and there was about a dozen of us turned up. And we spent um, an enlightening six weeks being trained by the Colour Sergeant Club Swinger, uh, physical training instructor. Um, on rope climbing and jumping over boxes and he got us fit as fiddles so that we then went on to the potential officers course um, and uh, absolutely blew that away did another admiralty interview board and was passed for the Royal Marines wow. uh, which I then joined in, in May 80 May 1980 mm -hmm. um, and then my journey from there was um, you know young officer training uh, it was a year in those days, and then I went to four five commando uh, as a subaltern. Um, I we we went straight on operations into Belfast, um, which was an eye opening experience as a young subaltern. Um, it was during the hunger strike. Um, um, Bobby Sands had just ended his life, and there were riot, riots in Belfast every day, every night for the first two months of our tour. And it was exhausting. But we learned our trade and we learned our craft. And, you know, we lost guys and we captured guys and, you know, we did did things that we thought we'd never do um in terms of tactical actions. And uh, it was it was it, it was um enlightening and and hard work and really really learned about the the how good Marines are. Um, you know, when you task them and lead them well. Um, and then from there, uh, we went to Norway. They sent all the subalterns to Norway to get a winter uh, qualification, become Arctic cubs, because you need to do three winters before you become an Arctic wolf. And uh, <laughs> that was the start of a love affair with um, with the snow. And I think over the, my year, I did about 10 different sorts of winters over my time. Uh, at different stages, and uh, what a, a fantastic soldiering environment! Um, like like the jungle, it it de it demands you to have a very high state of personal administration, um, because you have to overcome the environment in order to be able to be effective uh, uh, as a soldier, sailor, or airman. Um, and uh, you know, just just 
really really makes you really makes you uh, uh, on another level. And I think those who have soldiered out in the jungle or or uh, cold weather environment are um, top of the game. Yeah, and I just want to come in because this is a fascinating story. I want you to continue on with it. Going back to um, at the Protestant school and going into the Catholic side, I imagine that's probably why you're a good runner and keeping fit now. You had to run like hell to get through there and avoid the beating. Um, but but you're right. When uh, in the Green Howards, when we served in Northern Ireland, some of the officers were Protestant, some of the officers were Catholic. So they went, "You Protestant bastards!" And and I went, uh, "Actually, he's Catholic and I'm Protestant." You know, so it doesn't really matter. Yeah. Oh, oh, right, okay. And um, and then uh, very interesting being a midshipman. My father was a midshipman, you know, hence his hat at the back. And he was a midshipman on HMS Belfast in the Korean War wow. uh, as it was firing on to the Chinese and the Russian emplacements. Of course, you know, here we are again. And this this could could rear its head again, again, fighting the Chinese. Who knows when that's going to happen? Your winter experience, great admiration for that. You and I were talking about Wim Hof and going in the cold plunge. I mean, you had all that kind of training. God, hardcore stuff. In fact, while I was sitting in the freezing cold water this morning for my two minutes, I thought, what am I even worrying about? Jim, did, who I'm going to interview later on to, this morning, he's been doing this for years. And I, so just, just sit there in the cold water and just do your two minutes and stop whinging about it. Um but I, I was reading Sir Randolph Fiennes' book when I was on holiday. And of course, his trips uh, to the art. And then, of course, I was reading Across an Angry Sea by uh, Cedric Delves. And when they landed on the glacier and all the winter trading and how things went to ratchet. And I just think you have to have this hard trading so that mm -hmm. war doesn't become so difficult. And so so tell me more. But I just think great admiration for you with, with the winter training that you did and all the other mm -hmm. training in Belfast. Well, that's right. So, as I say, we did lot, lots of... Over the years, I, I worked in different units and brigade headquarters, um, some tour, uh, some tours with uh, doing maritime counterterrorism uh, with the Special Boat Service. Um, fascinating stuff. I did an exchange in Germany with 2nd Battalion, the Queen's Regiment. Went back to Belfast with them. Um, you know, we, we, we had some great results there um, and uh, I managed to... Um, capture two active service units our company alone which as you know is no main feat mm, that's wow um, and they, they were great stories about how how they they came about um uh did three tours in different jungles in brunei and belize um with companies and and units and then about 12 amphibious floats um which really is where i i sort of earned my mastery uh, in in uh, planning and conducting amphibious operations, uh, which really is what brought me to brought me to Australia, um, and in between times, uh, so five years in uh, NATO uh, in a in a maritime amphibious headquarters in Naples, which was an absolute joy, mm. and uh, you know there I was training, training and putting the NATO response force amphibious forces through their paces. Um, uh, for you know a good time, and out of that, I ended up going to Afghanistan uh, as one of the core staff, uh, and being the one star um, combined joint op operations officer in the HQ ISAF in two thousand and eight, um, working for General McLean and General McKiernan as their ops guy. Um, tremendous experience, really interesting working at that level. Um, of what is tactical command, but very much at the operational setting and and strategic setting as well. Um, fascinating, fifty six thousand troops. And, um, and and Jim, just staying with that, people listening to this, we have a mixture of military people listen to this, but a lot of CEOs and a lot of people who aspire to be leaders in the C suite in different businesses. From all this experience you have, what would you say a, a top two or three tips that you take from this and you give to people in business? And you say, you know, from my learning of planning operations, being involved in them, what, if you, there's so many lessons, but if you could pick out yeah. two, two or three, what would you say? Well, I, <clears throat> when I talk to um, companies and, and industry, um, I usually base my talks around three things. 
know yourself, know your people, and be a good communicator. Um, and I think it's tremendous important as any, for any leader to really sit sit down and figure out who you are. Who is who is Johnny? Hmm. You know, where's he going, and how's he going to get there? You know, three basic coaching questions, which for some people are really difficult to answer because they've never taken any time to sit and figure out who they are. Who who are they? And of course, it changes over your lifestyle. As we go through the stages um, of aging, uh, which we all go through, um, your your uh, wants, needs and desires change. And so you have to keep reevaluating that as you go through. So having a good understanding of who you are um, and your conscious competency level on the things that you're involved in doing helps you build the team around you to reinforce your strengths and mitigate your weaknesses uh, such that you can you and your team can be effective and reach the true potential. Mm. Um, so I, when I'm talking to people, I use examples from my military experience, either lived, I, I've seen it, I've done it, or I've read about it, um, and uh, and you know, reading is a great learning. <laughs> There's so much, uh, so much to go. And sometimes reading reinforces. I had this chat with Gordon yesterday. Um, you know, we 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 didn't have a mantra in Forty Commando as we prepared for our mission, um, but in reading Hal Moore's book, um, we were soldiers once and young, um, and of course that was converted into the film. Um, uh, with Mel Gibson, and uh, you, you might remember that was the they did the helicopter assault into Idrang, and uh, thought that thought they were meeting a minor opposition, and it just just went to hell in a handbasket and uh, ferocious, ferocious fighting. And he before he could extract his uh, his battalion um, from that fight, but his when I read his book, he talked about his mantra was, "What's one more thing." One more thing. Planning never ends. And so you come up with your plan, and then he would say to his company commander, so what's one more thing you can do? And I would do that, and he said, right, what's one more thing? And never stop asking yourself that question, what's one more thing? Uh, and and we did that, not using the mantra, but that's that's why we were so successful, I'm convinced, um, in our operation L4, because we had the time to plan, and we didn't waste it. And once we had a basic plan, we just refined it and refined it and refined it. And an example would be, um, we had a primary landing site for all the helicopters. Um, and of course we couldn't use any reconnaissance. Everything was electronic. We were looking at air photographs. We're trying to figure out what the surface of the, the ground was, but we had no intelligence on it. And we weren't allowed to put people in to look for fear of compromising the mission. Uh, so it was all electronic and best guess, and our engineers pouring over maps and charts and things. Oh, we think it'll be this one. It's a big clear space in the middle of the uh, the main target. That was the landing site. But then we said, well, what what happens if it's compromised or it's rubbish or we can't use it? What else are we going to use? And there was a road structure, a road grid inside the target that we we worked out would wide enough to put the Chinooks and Sea King helicopters onto and the US MH53s. But there were telegraph poles, you see, down the sides. So we need to drop them. So we put assault engineers in the first wave, and their job, if the landing site was compromised, was to go and blow those telegraph poles down. Now, in my mind, I thought telegraph pole, big dot of wood, about that size, <laughs> you know. And, uh, and but the engineers being you know uh, living in the land of pea for plenty in terms of how much Dems kit do we need? Thankfully, didn't listen to Jim and went, nah, nah, we better take just in case you know some extra deck cords, some extra few uh, foot. The actual telegraph poles were concrete, and they yeah. were the best part of a meter wide at the base. Oh, shit. Yeah. And um, and of course the first wave landed on the ground broke through this thin crust of about an inch of hard crust and into a quagmire of mud and sand. Oh, no. Sunk right up to the bellies of the aircraft um, and barely got off the deck. I mean, it was, they were pulling max power 
to get the helicopters out. And all the Marines jumped out, and it was horrendous. They, you know, they had pulled themselves off the landing site, get onto hard standing, and get into the fight. So the LS was useless. Um, so we had to go for the secondary. But every Marine had in his top right hand pocket his compass, um, and it was set to the bearing that you needed to go from your helicopter to your rendezvous point. So because we had a secondary LS, we issued every Marine a second compass in his top left-hand pocket. Wow. With a bearing for the secondary LS. Um, wow. So so that it was, we, you know, we had the ability to plan for. Wow. And so the loss of the LS was seamless. The engineers ran over, blew the, blew the poles, the second wave came in on time. Wow. Jim, that, that's, that's a legend story. You must write your book. You must write your book. Jim, this is fascinating. Thank you. I'm really enjoying this. Okay. Um, we spent more time on this, but I'm really pleased we have. Can you just in a, in a couple of minutes, tell us about when you then moved to the Australian Army and uh, ended up as a captain in the Australian Navy. Sorry, the Australian Navy. So so tell us in, in that bit of the, the story. So... Um... I hadn't seen my my second son Ewan for a while. He was traveling in Australia uh, Easter, and so Sally, uh, my wife, and I decided we'd come out and visit him. Where are you, Ewan? Oh, we're in Adelaide. Right, we're coming. So on the flight over, I texted all my Australian buddies uh, and said, "This is my program. We're going Adelaide, you know, Melbourne, Canberra, Sydney. This is the route. If anyone's around, let me know." And this chap called Rick Barr, who I'd served in Afghanistan um, with, uh, he was commanding the special forces there. Uh, while I was the the, the, the chief seed um, chief ops guy, uh, and we we'd been neighbours in the village um, uh, where we lived, and he 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 said, "Yeah, I'll come." And uh, he met us on the Yarra. And we're sitting there having a bit of a yarn and a, a couple of beers with Sally and Ewan and and Rick. And uh, I said, "What are you doing?" He says, "I've just taken over the first division." And what's on your entry? Oh, I've got this amphibious thing. I've been to. Um, you know, I'm now the joint capability manager for the uh, the new amphibious capability. I said, but you don't know anything about amphibian. He went, I know. He says, but you do. If I asked, would you come? I said, Sally, oh, you want to come to Australia? And she said, yeah, I could live here. <laughs> <laughs> and Ewan, Ewan's rolling his eyes going, oh, that would never happen. Well, that was April. By the November, we were um, in Australia. Wow. Wow. And, um, you know, it wasn't all Rick's doing by any means. It was um, a good friend of mine, Will Taylor, was a defence attaché in Canberra, and I told him the story, and he said, well, actually, Chief of Navy has asked uh, for a Royal Marine. And uh, so we made it me. And, uh, <laughs> and I came, I came in, in November that year and and uh, sat in the fleet headquarters uh, working for Navy to help develop Navy's ability to bring in these three massive new ships that they were buying, one of the Mounts Bay class from Britain and two brand-new Spanish-built um, uh, landing helicopter dock ships, uh, which they then called HMAS Canberra and HMAS Adelaide. So we brought them into service, trained the crews up how to use them from an amphibious point of view, um, uh, brought army on board uh, and worked with army to learn how to live at sea and operate from the sea, um, create a pre-landing force, which they didn't have in the uh, in the Australian Defence Force at that time, the combination of divers and reconnaissance, um, snipers, uh, small boats people that could operate from the ships at distance at night up to Sea State 4 to insert uh, the eyes and ears of the commanders um, and create a culture of a commander of landing forces and a commander of amphibious task groups to work together with one joint integrated staff. Wow. Um, that's what we've achieved. That's well, good. Jim, what a what a great achievement uh, and congratulations on that. Hey, look, there's so much. We, we, we need a few days for this. We need a few days for this. But let's go and have a look at a few of the other things that I'm interested in hearing from you. In all your experiences that you've had, Jim, I would love to hear about your proudest moment in your life, uh, happiest moment, and also a dark moment. And, and what you learned from both those moments in your life? Um, well, I think my, without a doubt, my happiest, proudest moment um, was bringing, being part of the leadership team that brought all of 40 Commando back intact from uh, Telic 1 after what was described as Mission Impossible. And we've been through that. 
Um, that taught me the value of planning. Um, and then my other proudest moment was seeing my son, Jamie, pass out as a Royal Marine uh, and then on then go on to become a sniper, uh, which was almost unbelievable since he'd been the, you know, um, the most fidgety, uh, you know, butterflyish individual as a kid. And I thought, how, how are you ever going to quieten down to have the discipline to be a sniper? And he did. And he passed and he, he then went on to support the the um, directing staff in the sniper wing at, at the commando training center because he was good. Mm. Um, and so that was that was tremendous to see that that happen. Um, and uh, and then my other my other proudest moment was seeing my wife um, after she'd raised the children largely without me, because I think she calculated at 20 years of marriage, I'd only been around for 10 of them. Um, and we've just had our 40th anniversary, and she reckons 20 max. Because um, <laughs> most of the time, most of the time in Australia, I've been at least 150 days away per year, um, you know, doing this, doing this work. So yeah, she's, she's soldiered on, but at age of 40 plus, she trained as a midwife and, wow. um, and, uh, and, 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 and her midwifery skills at Winchester, um, which I was really proud of. That was a great mm. thing to do. Fantastic. And on a more somber note, Jim, uh, you have a dark moment, and uh, I wonder if you would share that. Yeah, too many, to be honest, John. Um, look, losing my son, Jamie, he he was killed in a training accident um, at Lulworth, prepare, preparing for his second um, a tour of Afghanistan. Um, tragedy above all. Um, he was only 23 he had all his life ahead of him um, but he was doing things he, he loved to do mm. and um, it shouldn't happen but it did you know and um, uh, incredibly incredibly hard thing to bear um, but mm. you know that was bad uh, and then I'll just stay with that one Jim sorry, yeah, sure. sorry to say uh, for your loss it was awful what did you learn from that? Because you're a, a hell of a guy. There's a depth to you, which is exceptional. But when you get hit with something like that, that you have no control over, you weren't there, you couldn't stop it, you couldn't protect him, just 23 years old, sort of somebody following in your footsteps. As you reflect now, years later, what's the lesson for others who might go through the similar thing, lose a child of theirs? Mm. Well, it's a great question. Um, I think, you know, Sally and you and his brother would agree that Jamie lived his life to the absolute fullest. And he squeezed everything he could out of those 23 years. And I think we all kind of look at ourselves and go, are we, are we maximizing our lives? And Ewan just woke up. He was, I mean, Jamie died the day Ewan graduated from uni. And you and just went, that's it. I'm, 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 I'm not working for the man. I'm going to live my life. And he saved up and went traveling, and he's still traveling. <laughs> he's still traveling. Um, fourteen, fifteen years later, and he's living his best life. He, he has two passions: um, snowboarding and surfing. And so he puts himself. You know, he works. To snowboard and he works to surf and that's that's his life and he's now been about five years in japan up in hokkaido in the mountains there and he's just had over 120 days boarding <laughs> you know, it's like he's living his best life so he that that's what he did and you know i'm sally and i are constantly evaluating you know whether we're doing the right thing and making the most of what we've got in the time together mm. um, and uh, I think that, that that would be the advice I'd give everyone. Um, coping with the loss, like you you can't control it. You have to let your kids go, mm. and be and live their lives. Um, and it will be what it will be. Um, you know, some of us get, some of us get a long time. Some of us don't. Um, it's just it is life. Mm. 
I, I'm just so sorry for you. And clearly, I have nothing like that. But when I think back to my father being killed when he was 33, and he was, uh, as we discussed, you and I, uh, and is in the Royal Navy like you, uh, he was a fleet air arm fast jet pilot. And uh, his co-pilot who lived and the pilot who said he died and I should be dead instead because it was my aircraft, my buccaneer, he was test flying. So it would have killed me, the, the fault on the turbine that went through and caused the fire and so on. The co-pilot said, Jonathan, he lived his whole life. It, it just was 33 years. It, it, and that was his life. That was what was going to be. And he mm -hmm. made the most of it. He lived it to the full. Yeah. And, and I, um, even now, I just want to make sure I live my life to the full every day. And do you know what? If I die today, I've had one hell of a life. And and like you, coaching and helping others, uh, which which is what my wife Lee and I do. But we also got a charity for violence against women and girls. Um, <laughs> South Africa, Kenya, Uganda now, uh, throughout the UK, helping serious organized crime with these poor women who are going through abuse and trafficking and being used by different men and things. So that's where we can make a difference in our lives. And if we've made a difference to just one, it, it's worth it. Um, Jim, thank you for showing that. And I'm really sorry about um, Jamie getting killed. Uh, thinking back to that younger time, if you could travel back now, Jim, to your own uh, age, 16 to 18, and there's people listening who've got children that sort of age, what bit of advice? You know, don't worry about this, but that really does matter. If you met the young Jim and you go, hey, kid, this is this is what really matters and this doesn't. What would you what advice would you give? I. I, I have reflected on this and. Um, you know, one of the one of the things on everyone's lips nowadays is the whole business of resilience. And how how resilient are our young people? Um. I look back and I failed loads of times. You know, before I even joined the Navy, I'd failed to get into the Merchant Navy. I'd failed to get in as an engineer at Sandhurst. Um, I'd failed to be join BP tankers. You know, oh, I don't know why I failed all these things. I just oh, I even tried the RAF to be a pilot. Couldn't do that either. You know, but I didn't give up. I didn't go, oh, that's it. Life's over. I'd paint myself up, dust myself off, you know, what else can I do? What else can I do? What else can I do? And, um, you know, even then, once I became a Royal Marine officer, you know, I tried out, I tried out to be a mountain leader and um, I was a bit of a stroppy guy in those days. And um, I didn't really like the way uh, the officer commanding the mountain Arctic warfare cadre was running the course that I was on. So I spoke up. And he gave me a chance to shut up and sit down, but I didn't. And I got kicked off the course on the last day. Oh, no. <laughs> Nine months. Oh, God. Um, and, and, you know, I, I stopped by my vehicles, <laughs> and so I wasn't a mountain leader. Um, there you go. That's it. But, it, you know, I was miserable for a couple of days, but then you move on and do something else. Um. Uh, my advice to parents is, you know, failure is a good thing. Mm. It's good for kids to fail at stuff. Um, and and your your job as a parent is to help them realize that there's learning to be had from those failures that will make them stronger and more resilient mm. going on. Because life's about ups and downs. We we follow a sinusoidal path, you know. Um, when I had my sort of psych eval just before I, I left the Australian Navy last month, um, I went in, and uh, tongue-in-cheek, I went into psych and I said, okay, I want to know why I haven't got PTSD. Everyone seems to have PTSD and I haven't got it. What's going on? What's wrong with me? <laughs> it was a, it was a tongue-in-cheek um, uh, go. And, um, and, and, you know, we had a good chat about it. Um, and uh, Did they say you have got it? No, I've not got. I've not got it. <laughs> but a, but a few of my good friends, um, one who did four tours at Hereford with the SAS, he sadly has had it quite badly. Yeah. But it was some eight years after he left the army, 
and the army went, oh, it's too late. But but that's often when it happens. And and you think it should be a lifetime of support for these people who serve, particularly Absolutely. when they've done what they've done. I mean, four tours, special forces, and they still won't help you. I think that's poor. But he's he's a modest man, so he won't ask for help. Yeah. But that's, of course, what they need. Hey, um, that's that. I should just say, uh, John, that's this, this shirt I'm wearing, Remount. That's the charity I support. Uh, yeah. And it's an equine therapy charity. And we put PTSD sufferers on horseback, um, on stock horses for programs um, in New South Wales, rural New South Wales. And um, uh, it's just a fantastic um, means of getting people to give away a bit of themselves to the horse um and it and it works really well for ptsd sufferers um and my job is to go out and find military folks that do with the help yeah um and i well, enjoy that and enjoy seeing the results um afterwards well I, I may introduce you to him uh and it's interesting also i did a couple of interesting things recently uh one was to go to peru and uh, go to Machu Picchu and do the ayahuasca ceremony and the San Pedro ceremony, which also helps people with PTSD. They, a number of the servicemen have found those interesting experiences. Um, and, and also doing the Hoffman Institute program, which I talked to you about in Byron Bay, they do, but they also do in the UK and America. That's very good for dealing with some of the issues that we carry with ourselves. Mm -hmm. Hey, look, there's so much for us to chat about. Let's just do some quick fire questions. We'll cover a few of these. Uh, biggest regret in life, a crucible moment that shaped you, what would it be? Ooh. Crucible moment. Um, <laughs> I'm thinking there. That's fine. Yeah. Um, you asked me that question and I can't find what I put for my answer. Don't worry. Just what comes to the top of your head. Uh, Oh, right. My my crucible moments, I reckon, were all my near-death experiences. <laughs> How many did you have? Well, um, I remember sitting with my son, um, well, my son's actually before he passed in a pub. I think it, I think it was the night of my son, my younger son's 18th birthday. Um, and uh, and they said, Dad, near-death experiences have you had? And, <laughs> and we, we started listing them. And we got past nine, and I went, what? okay, I'm, I'm, I'm done. Um, and so I think every time you have one of those, you kind of do a bit of a reevaluation. Mm. Uh, uh, but other crucible moments are acts of kindness. Mm. You know, when I when I left the navy uh, in February, um, this chap that runs the remount uh, charity, Ben, he uh, he said to me, "Oh, Jim." As a mark of you leaving, why don't you come around for a drink, you know, on Wednesday night about five o'clock? And I went, oh, okay, yeah. Didn't really think much of it. I said, Sally, oh, Ben's ass is round uh, for a drink. And, and she's okay. And uh, I was, uh, embarrassingly, it didn't really work that hard to be there on time. <laughs> so I rocked up about quarter past five. And I'm driving down into the stables Um where he, he told me to go, and I see all these cars parked. And I go, oh, hang on a minute, what's going on here? And he had assembled, you know, some of my oldest friends, you know, new friends, Navy friends, remount friends, business chamber people, you know, there must have been 30 odd people there. Wow. Just to say thank you for your service, which was really touching. And, you know, those are crucible moments. Because if you, you you realize people care about you, and it's and it's really nice, it's really nice uh, when when people do that for each other, those acts of kindness. Yeah, that's that's very special and a, a real recognition uh, of that. That's what counts for the, the people who know what you've done. That's where it mm -hmm. counts. Mm -hmm. Going around the Inspire Leadership Compass, which we happen to use about what makes people high performers, yeah. and you by anybody's standard, Jim. <laughs> Are and you've you've trained people to be high performers. Your um, MQ moral quotient, your your values and beliefs. One quick tip: when you've come off your compass of your values that you hold true and dear, whether it be from your 
your, your Protestant upbringing um, in, the, in those tough days in air, or whether it be things you'd learned in the Royal Marines or things you learned in the Australian Navy. When you come off your values, what do you do to bring yourself back on? What tip would you give people to get yeah. back on track? Well, I think uh, my my true north, I know you use the term true north, is Sally. Um, mm -hmm. We've been together over 40 years. Um, she keeps me on the straight and narrow. Um, my that, that thing that we must do is communicate. Um, the power of talking and listening um is so so important and and shit just happens when you don't do it it just does mm. when you drift drift apart from that constant communication that's when you know old murphy gets off his fence and mm. invokes his law and you know life gets gets rubbish um so you know we i think we make a conscious effort you know, we share each night. We before we go to sleep, we share uh, what was your highlight for today and what you're grateful for. Mm. Funny little thing. I encourage it when I'm coaching people. Bring it into your life, um, because it it just it makes you reflect on um, on your day, and it usually puts a smile on your face. And it's mm. far better to go to sleep with a smile on your face than a scowl. Uh, I love that. I love that. I'm gonna. I've written it down. I'm gonna start. Doing <laughs> yeah. I have. I have a gratitude journal, five minute journal .com, which ends with what I'm grateful for. But I think saying it to each other, to Lee and myself, um, meaning and purpose. PQ is the next one round. Um, if you were to give people advice about finding their sense of meaning and purpose, what what yeah. short tip would you give? So I'm a great fan of defining your own life purpose, uh, and I was helped by a coach many years ago to actually go through the discipline of writing my own. Uh, and mine is, it, it, I have found since I've written it, it makes life decisions incredibly easy because you just measure that decision against your life purpose. And if it ticks the boxes, do it. If it doesn't, yeah. don't. Just don't even entertain that temptation of, you know, going off to climb Kilimanjaro or, you know, that great offer to, you know, do this, that, or the next thing, take that job. If it doesn't hit your life purpose, don't do it. Because it, it, it won't work for you. Fantastic. Love it. I'm, I I have mine on my wall here and I just keep checking with it. Um, and also sort of life priorities with your, your wife and your kids mm -hmm. and, and grandkids in my case. Um, mental health and physical health been very important to you particularly you keep yourself in great shape because you're what 61 62 yeah but looking looking in great shape and looking like something like from indiana jones for those who are listening uh, around the world on apple or spotify or google um but um a top tip on uh keeping your physical health particularly at the age that you and i are at and also looking after your mental health now what do, what's your top tip on those quickly yeah. Um, top tip for um, physical health is core. I think if you if you keep your core strong, um, the rest of you will perform well. Um, so I do that with a series of exercises. We do three or four days a week, and they don't last more than ten minutes. And I do Pilates, and um, I've got into you know once or twice a week doing reformer Pilates. Um, great coach um, that puts us through. Our pieces, and uh, I find that really useful. Fantastic. Um, and mental? Mental, um, spoon carving. Learn to carve a spoon. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I, I'm delighted to say that I, my my little hobby of turning a spoon is now a business, and and I've found uh, the joy of running a market stall um, and and showing, demonstrating people how to carve spoons, and then and then they want to buy them as well, which is even better. <laughs> That's fantastic. That, that helps me buy more tools. That's, that's great. And now we're going to go on in a minute to um, the executive team's favorite book on leadership and your top tip. But if we're thinking about the other elements of the compass, I just want you to pick out one that you want to share a tip on. So we've got EQ. We've got sort of diversity and quality of what I call cultural um, quotient, resilience, brand, legacy. So which which would you pick and what would your top tip be, Ken? Mm -hmm. I think resilience, it, like we only get one life. In fact, mm -hmm. my coaching company is One Life, uh, One Life Coaching. Um, we get one shot at it. Um, and, you know, you can sit back and mope around 
feeling sorry for yourself, you can get up, dust yourself off and get back in there. And that's what I do. Um, and I encourage everyone else to do the same. Um, and it's hard when you get knocked back. It's hard when you don't get the job you were aiming for. Um, you know, you can... You, you, you just need to get on with your life and mm. and be be aware that there's only one chance. You get one shot. And I often say to people in coaching, you know, when you're sitting on your rocker, on your deck, and as the sun's going down and you get your favourite tipple in your hand and you reflect on your life, um, what do you not want to be thinking? Mm-hmm. You know, if you're sitting going, I wish, I wish, I wish, ah, oh, that's not going to be very good. Yeah. If you're sitting there contented, yeah, so it's in your power. I, I really love that, Jim. And uh, I, I'm very blessed. Uh, a lot of gratitude, a lot of appreciation for my life. I've I've messed up and got a lot of things wrong. I've uh, had some setbacks, things didn't work out quite as I wanted, but I've had a lot of blessings, a lot of gifts. And and being married to Lee and having four kids and two grandkids, they're blessings. And, and the fact that Graham is alive, um, well, sadly, David isn't, but Graham lived. Um, those, those blessings. So I, I'm each day I go, if, if my number's up today, I've had one hell of a day. Um, let's go on to um, favorite book on leadership. If you were to pick a, a book you've read on leadership or listened to, if you, I listened to a lot of audio books, which one would you recommend to me and the, the people listening, Jim? Oh, that's that was a real tough one. I, I, I read widely. Um, I think I cracked about 65 audio books last year on my commute to work. Um, wow. And I, I, I listened to lots of different things. But, you know, so I think there's a lot to be learned from failed leadership, poor leadership. Mm-hmm. There is about good leaders. So, you know, um, Steve Zalonga's George C. Patton, that's a powerful read. Um, Bernard Cornwall's books on... Um, uh, Uhtred. I know the oh, fiction. Yes, yeah, yeah. On Uhtred um, and the, the, the Last Kingdom books. Fascinating insight. And I know they're novels, but there's still a lot to learn because he is a, he, he does thorough research. Yeah. Um, I can't remember the name of the author, but the book on Stalingrad. Um, yeah. You know, haunting read. Yeah. And looking at the, the journeys of both the Russian and the German commanders. Mm. Um, the strengths and failings, you know, real lot to learn there. Peter Gosgrove, Peter Cosgrove, um, former uh, chief of defence in Australia, his book, um, and, a, and a, a delightful little book I read recently called um, "537 Days of Winter," okay, by David North, and he led the Australian Antarctic Survey team through COVID, and they yeah. were stuck. They were stuck there for 537 days. You know, they were only supposed to do a year. And, of course, they had that massive dislocation of expectations where they said, no, you're not coming back. You're staying. That's tough, you know, to go through another winter. Um, Wow. Great stories. In fact, well, well, I remember Peter Cosgrove, when I did uh, Exercise Rainbow Serpent, which was a sort of uh, uh, Americans, Brits, uh, Canadians, New Zealanders, uh, training up uh, Australian troops. Uh, it was for the East Timor operation we did. Peter Cosgrove was the general who, you know, briefed us all and talked to us all when we came to Sydney. And one of my good friends was General Paul Simons. Uh, I don't know if you came across him in Australia at all, but a lovely, lovely man who did, uh, he was instructor at Santos with me, but uh, you need to look him up. Okay. Um, finally, Jim, if you just introduce yourself again for the, the two minute top tip, because this stands in its own right, just say what you did. Uh, what you're doing now and what your top practical leadership tip would be. And we'll finish there. Okay. Um, my name is Jim Hutton. Uh, I'm a carver of wooden spoons and a life and leadership coach. Uh, I have uh, a history of being a colonel in the Royal Marines and a captain in the Royal Australian Navy, both of which were demanding and interesting um, and fantastic parts of my life. Um I think above all, be true to yourself. Um, Speak up when you see something is wrong. Try to do the right thing. Ask for help of folk that you trust and respect. Um, And it will be given willingly. Uh, And they will think the more of you for asking.
Be there for people. Know yourself. Understand yourself. Figure out who you are, where you're going, and how you're going to get there. And do the same for your people. And above all, communicate as best you can in every way you can. Jim, wise words indeed. And thank you. Uh, you also have an OBE, which you modestly have not mentioned, but that's a <laughs> hell of an award and a, a great recognition of all that you've done. It's been a, a true honor to have you on this podcast. You have the humility, the humanity, and a lovely bit of humor. So thank you for being on the Inspiring Leadership Podcast. Thanks, Jonathan. Been a pleasure. Good luck to you. So now you've heard from one of the inspiring leaders that I've interviewed, what are you going to do next? If you want to get some more free material, go to my website, jonathanperks.com, or follow me on LinkedIn, Jonathan Bowman Perks. And there you can get access to my books, uh, Inspiring Leadership and Top Tips for Inspiring Leaders. But if you want to actually do something about being a leader and constantly improving your game, raising your performance, get in touch with me about coaching you or one of your team that you want to raise the game for them. It's got to be people who want to be good to great, not people who you're trying to fire. And if you're looking for a motivational speaker, get in touch. Or if you want me to work with your team coach, I would be delighted to help you.